holy moly, have you people seen the weather forecast for the southeast? That's where I am. It's going to be cold. I bet it's going to be cold everywhere. I was on uh, with WHIO in Dayton, Ohio earlier, and it's, I heard the weather forecast up there. It's going to be chilly there as well. My goodness gracious. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of this program, and it is Friday, so we're very loose on the calls. You can call it about something that's been on your mind for a while. I'll even answer your cooking questions. If you can make it past my call screener, 877-973-7425. Waiting uh, very patiently is Lewis. I want to take his call. Lewis, welcome. Hey, Eric. How are you today? Good. Sorry it took so long to get to you. No, no, it's okay. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to talk uh, a little bit about what Porsche is doing. Porsche is doing something what's called a zero emissions gasoline, which is a synthetic gasoline, but it's real gasoline. Uh, what they're doing is pulling the carbon out of the sky. It burns through the engine, and the carbon you pull is the carbon you emit. I want to know how that would affect, uh, you know, affect the, the Green New Deal, all these things about saying that, you know, we're changing the climate, and et cetera, when there's a company that's about to start testing 30,000 gallons next year. You know, so I'm glad you raised this question because there actually is a real answer and not a flippant one here. Um, the the left is so intent on ending fossil fuels uh, that they don't even want to subsidize this sort of research because it might dissuade people from going to batteries and wind power uh, and, and electric-powered vehicles where you still have to get electricity from something. Uh, it's unfortunate because, yeah, this technology is out there. I, you know, it's funny you should say this because there was an article somewhere this week. And it wasn't about them, um, but it was about some other group that is developing similar technology. And that one of the problems is that there's no real government financial incentive to do it. And the technology is very expensive right now because of the shift. So they're trying to lobby. That's it's, it's intriguing. I didn't realize Porsche was one of the ones doing it and notice Lewis. I said, Porsche, not Porsche. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It, it really it is, is a neat technology though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I mean, they're going to start doing, they're going to start doing it in Germany, the, the 30,000 gallons. And I mean, they're not a cheap company. You know, they right. don't have cheap engines for them to trust their own product to go into those cars. It's impressive to me. Yeah, it, it, I'm I'm fascinated by it. I, and I really I had no idea they were some of the ones doing it. I, I forget where I was reading it this week. It might have been the Wall Street Journal um, about the technology being out there. And, you know, I continue to say that we got to leave it to the private sector. And thanks very much for the phone call, Lewis. We, we, we got we to gotta leave, leave this sort of stuff to the private sector and allow them to innovate. Um, it's, it's fascinating what companies are doing out there right now to determine uh, where we should go in the future. And you've got companies, for example, like Apple that are trying to be 100% renewable energy. And God bless them if they can do it. Now, keep in mind, and this is part of the problem here, as the Democrats go into the Build Back Better plan, a lot of companies are doing what they're doing because there are government incentives for them to reduce their carbon footprint. And a lot of those incentives go towards hydro, uh, go towards uh, solar, go towards wind. They don't necessarily go towards uh, carbon capture and carbon recycling. And companies are using the tax credits and tax deductions in order to pursue these things. And because of that, uh, they're making progress. If the government decides to impose a minimum corporate income tax, 
you may see a slowdown in the corporate uptake towards their own futures. Now, what I find fascinating about this is a lot of these companies, and I want to focus on Apple because it's the one I'm most familiar with because you all know I'm in the cult. Apple has solar panels, wind farms, uh, positions itself where it can in places that have hydroelectric power to get to 100% renewable energy to build its products. Not only that, it engages in various offsets and carbon capture programs, and it also recycles a lot of its materials. So I've got a new MacBook Pro coming. Unfortunately, everyone on my team now has a brand new MacBook Pro except for me. And I assure you, and I don't mean this to, to, to exaggerate or brag, but I use mine at capacity in ways no one else in the company does. But for some reason, everybody gets the new MacBook Pro with the new Apple chip before me because I am a gracious and very humble boss. <laughs> but nonetheless, so one of the things that Apple is doing, which I'm fascinated by with its program, is it's recycling everything it possibly can. And in so doing, I mean, even the parts inside the computer get recycled. So you get recycled aluminum, you get recycled copper, you get recycled gold, you, you get all of these things. And I'm just very fascinated by their their ability to and their willingness to pursue a vast array of recycling options for their hardware. And they do it in part because... It, uh, they think it's good for the environment and it's part of their values. And they do it in part because they get some tax incentives and credits to be able to do things like this to make it possible for them to do something that would otherwise be expensive by deducting their costs, legitimately deducting their costs, they're able to pursue these things. And when you start restructuring the tax code to force them to pay certain minimums, you may very well find out they no longer want to do these sorts of things. Now, I don't think Apple will give it up, but other companies might. And along the way, one of the other things we're doing here is we're allowing the government to pick the winners and the losers. So for a very long time in Georgia, where I am, and I know a lot of other states have this, there were lavish tax credits to get electric cars. In Georgia, for a number of years, up until I think the last four years, Georgia had the highest tax credit for electric vehicles in the country. And so around Atlanta, you saw a massive embrace of Tesla and the Nissan Leaf and other electric vehicles. And essentially the government was paying people uh, to, to get into electric cars. And, and they finally got rid of it when they restructured the tax code in Georgia. Um, but it was solely government subsidy. A lot of people did not want the electric car unless they could get the government subsidy. And, and why would you when you can get a fossil fuel burning vehicle that goes twice as far on a tank of gas? Now, Tesla owners, my buddy Clark Howard would argue with me on this point because of the upkeep, the wear and tear, uh, the cost of changing your oil and filling up with gas and all that. But for your average person, they look at the upfront cost and they think that's far more doable than paying the upfront cost on a Tesla and charging it overnight or getting a high-speed charger for their house and things like that. And the government policies incentivize or disincentivize these things. And, you know, yeah. so I had this stuff. I might as well get to it uh, now in, instead of waiting. Um, let, me, let me read you this headline from the Washington Post. The strong winds of climate change have failed to move the opinions of many Americans. Most believe global warming is a problem, but the partisan divide is growing. 
Even as windstorms become more powerful, wildfires grew more deadly and rising seas made damaging floods more frequent, American views about the threat of global warming over the past few years remain largely unchanged. A clear majority of adults say that warming is a serious problem, but that share, 67%, is the same as it was seven years ago, when alarms raised by climate scientists were less pronounced than they are now. The poll released Friday also finds the partisan divide over the issues is widened. The percentage of Democrats who see climate change as an existential threat rose by 11 points to 95% over seven years. The increase was driven partly by black Americans who are now more likely to see it as serious. Meanwhile, the share of Republicans who say climate change is a serious problem fell by 10 points over the same period. The Republican decline tracks with the polling from Gallup. And by the way, I'm in the camp that yes, it's a thing and no, I don't care about it. I'm totally in that camp. Uh, We are an adaptable species, or at least that's what the left tells us. Of course, the left now embraces all sorts of nonsense that, that they claim is scientific, and they don't. And while all of this is happening, the carbon footprint of those people meeting in Glasgow, Scotland, to deal with it is absurd. The amount of private jets and SUVs and limousines and and uh, convoys of vehicles going to Glasgow, Scotland, to deal with it shows these people aren't really serious. And again, It is the American and Western elite who aren't very bright people who care passionately about this issue because it gives them the feeling of being part of religion. And they're trying to impose their religious values about the climate and environment on the rest of us. And they themselves don't practice what they preach. They will find absolution and forgiveness of their sins and buying some carbon offsets that the rest of us can't. All right, back to the phones. George, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. How's it going, man? Great. How about yourself? All right. I just wanted to bring something to your attention. I don't know if you've heard about, but you were talking about the media intervention that was needed. And there's a lawsuit, a defamation suit by Project Veritas against the New York Times right now that's actually survived a couple of dismissal hearings. And I was wondering if uh, if that ever made it to the Supreme Court. I know that Clarence Thomas and maybe Alito as well have said that they wanted to look at uh, New York Times versus Sullivan again to see if they can if it needs to be revisited because it's such an absurdly high bar for libel and slander. Yeah. I know what you thought about. You know, and I think Gorsuch is with them, by the way. So you've got three. I don't know that you could get to five. Uh, And for those of you who don't know what George is talking about, New York Times versus Sullivan uh, sets out some defamation standards uh, that have spread over time with a number of court cases that essentially say, if you're a notable person and you want to sue for defamation, you must prove willful malice. Um, if, if I were to like, none of, you know, George, who's on the phone with me right now. And if I were to say something disparaging and false about George, George could sue me for defamation because George is not a famous person. But if I said that, uh, Joe Biden, for example, uh, said or did something terrible, awful, heinous, uh, he could not sue me unless it was willful malice on my part. And the willful malice standard, or the malice standard, is very, very difficult to prove. Rarely has it been proven. One of the very few times a celebrity ever proved malice was Carol Burnett. This is one of the famous cases in in defamation. Carol Burnett was at a restaurant in Washington, D.C., the famous comedian, and uh, tripped. And it was very notorious and open that Carol Burnett uh, did not drink at the time, was not drinking at the time. And the National Enquirer ran a story uh, that she had gotten drunk at the restaurant. And she sued for defamation and won uh, because it was clear malice on the part of the National Enquirer 
Um, and the reason it was clear malice is because it was well-known, documented, uh, asserted by everyone present in the restaurant that she had not been drinking. She tripped over a fold in the carpet. Uh, or there's the Hulk Hogan and Gawker situation. Uh, clear malice there. Uh, I don't know that we want to go down this road. Uh, I, I'm a little bit hesitant, uh, even though it would certainly benefit me. Um, but the reason that I'm hesitant to do so is because suddenly you're already seen in certain cases. Um, oh, what's the member of Congress? Um, uh, Daryl Issa, who's very wealthy, is suing a bunch of people who said things about him he did not like, and he's trying to use the court system to bankrupt them. Uh, one of them is a friend of mine, by the way. She ran an opponent's campaign and pointed out some of his hypocrisies, and he's suing her not to win the case because he can't. He's suing her to bankrupt her. And I think you would see powerful people try to bankrupt other people and the press if we lower the standard. I'm very concerned about that. Uh, and increasingly in this country, it is the left-wing rich people who are the most powerful, and they will have the most to gain by destroying other people through the bankruptcy process. That being said, I think Project Veritas actually probably has a good case against the New York Times, uh, given some of the wild claims the New York Times has made against them that do to me seem malicious. So I, I don't know if that answers yeah. your question there, George, but that's my thinking on it. I mean, it right now, the, the, the media sounds like they just drip with malice every day. So I don't know. Yeah, they do. That, that, that might be the only way to rein them back because – if you don't have a, a press that has got some sort of moral decency to it on both sides, then you're never going to fix it. Yeah, well, the number of reporters I know leads me to believe that there are no morals in the media these days. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah, listen, thanks very much for the phone call. 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. I will be right back. Okay, on the recipe front, uh, on a serious note, I did remember to send out a recipe this week, but I forgot to talk about it. <laughs> I, I will not dwell on this, but uh, so I, I've i got a Rectech smoker. It's a pellet grill. Uh, I like Rectech more than Traeger. They're better built, better quality steel. They get hotter. Uh, and I wanted to figure out a bacon-wrapped jalapeno recipe. And every one that I saw, I did not like. And because they're all basically just um, flavored or seasoned cream cheese stuffed in jalapenos and you wrap bacon around. I was like, this is, ah. So I did breakfast sausage. You know, you get the two, the one pound tube of breakfast sausage, you brown it. Then you add the cream cheese to that and you stuff it in the jalapenos and you wrap it, wrap the bacon around it, whole pieces of bacon. And then you stick it on your smoker, your pellet grill, or in your oven or whatever. You got to do it high heat, like 400 till the bacon's crispy. And holy moly, is it good. Now, I did some a couple of weeks ago in a trial run, and they were really good. This past Sunday, I did them, and the peppers uh, nearly made poor old Philip cry. They were so, so spicy. <laughs> oh, well. All right. Um, when we come back, uh, Bob Woodson is going to join me. Uh, to talk about uh, revitalizing, rebuilding uh, the inner city, uh, the inner city core uh, from a conservative perspective. But before I get to any of that, uh, you know who Duke Ellington was, I assume. You better know who Duke Ellington was. Well, the Duke Ellington School of Arts in Georgetown uh, is rejecting uh, money from Dave Chappelle. Chappelle had donated $100,000. It is his alma mater. And the rich, white, woke student body 
has decided no. Now, there's a larger issue here. Oh, hang on a second. I got to correct the record. Uh, it was Devin Nunes. I said Daryl Issa is suing my friend and, and people trying to bankrupt them. It was, I apologize to, to Congressman Issa. It's, it's Devin Nunes. Now, see, Issa could sue me for defamation um, if the standard was lower, even though I just made a mistake. It's another reason not to lower the standard. But nonetheless, uh, it is Nunes who is, um, I'm not a big fan of the guy. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of the guy because while he's made himself out to be some sort of big uh, Trump supporter behind the scenes, he is ruthlessly suing even conservatives who uh, who he gets mad at just to bankrupt him because he's got a lot of money. He doesn't care if he loses the case. He just wants to hurt them. And I, I think that's bullying, and I'm glad people are standing up to him. Nonetheless, back to Dave Chappelle. Um, the students are many of them identify as uh, let's get Biden to quit LGBTQ. And because they identify as let's get Biden to quit, uh, they're offended by his standup routine that they have probably never seen. And they don't want the school to make money or to take his money or to do a fundraiser in his honor because of it. I was talking to, I mentioned this the other day, a Fortune 500 executive who said the biggest problem that his and other companies are dealing with is that the Gen Z kids are insisting that their values be reflected in the companies they work for. And these companies, they don't realize, actually try to sell to people across political ideologies. And these kids want nothing doing. And they will maliciously sabotage the company through leaks and other other issues if the company doesn't follow them. And this guy's thinking, if we weren't in a labor shortage, a lot of these kids would be being fired right now. And I got to tell you, I was talking to a teacher friend of mine the other day who said the same thing, that uh, this teacher was telling me he works in a very prestigious private school and has to uh, be very careful how he negotiates the teaching in his class and what he says in his class because the the ire of these kids can bring down holy hell from parents. And I'm just thinking, how is it that my generation, Gen X, which is the best and most stable mentally generation, how is it that our kids are the ones who are behaving so awfully? Uh, there are a lot of kids out there who need spankings. I'm just I'm I'm just telling you. I realize uh, media matters will come after you for saying that, but my goodness gracious, some kids need to be put in their place. And if that means their parents need to spank them and tell them they are not in charge, then they need to do it because these kids who think they can assert cultural dominance in a corporation or a school are out of line and someone needs to put them back in line. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the nation from my flagship studio, WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. The phone number, 877-973-7425. Joining me by phone, someone I, I've never met him before. I know who he is, but I haven't met him. And so I'm delighted to have with me Robert Woodson uh, joining me. Sir, how are you? I'm just fine, Eric. Just fine. Pleased to be now, here. I have to ask you a question because uh, you worked with, for a time, one of my heroes, Jack Kemp. Uh, and yes. what was it like working with that guy? <laughs> it was, uh, he, he was on full speed ahead at full time. Uh, Jack was very <laughs> aggressive, uh, very passionate, a man that put principle above politics. And he was also, as a conservative, willing to reach out 
uh, into low-income neighborhoods and really spend time with me getting to know those heroes in in these low-income neighborhoods and become a champion for them. Well, and, and Mr. Woodson, I, I, I know we need to talk about 1776 Unites, but before we get there, this, I really do want to talk to you about your work. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Mr. Woodson has dedicated his life to really helping empower local communities around the country. In fact, going so far as uh, at one point advocating less power within the Justice Department at the federal level and more power locally within cities to empower the local communities to, to, to elevate themselves. And we seem to be back again at a time where we see cities, riots, looting, burning, division, and a lot of small business owners, non-white small business owners in particular, are they and their insurance premiums are paying the price for this. How do we, in your mind, turn a lot of this around and uh, get these communities back on their feet? Well, what I think we've really got to do is, is stop playing defense and practice the politics of negation where all we do is complain about what they are doing. I think what we must do is what the Woodson Center is doing is actively engage people in those communities suffering the problems, those whose children are being shot to death, those who are suffering because businesses are being driven out by lawlessness. And 80% of blacks, for instance, do not support defund the police. 60% of blacks, Paul, do not believe that racial discrimination or animus is the greatest barrier to a successful future. But, but the press does not give voice to those people. So I think those of us who, who believe in this nation, that its values and principles, we must reach out and join in common community with those uh, voices in these communities and give them an opportunity to uh, speak out and take action against the, the those who would exploit America's birth defect of slavery and discrimination and give them a chance to speak. For instance, we, we, we brought together thousands of black mothers who lost their children to urban violence into an organization in our under the center called Voices of Black Mothers United. They took out a full-page ad in USA Today condemning those who are, who are just, uh, attacking the police and supporting uh, working with the police. That's just one example of how we can support efforts on a part of those in those communities suffering a problem to speak for themselves and, and for America. Now, I, I, I want to go back to something you said on, on the, how the media and the press cover these stories and this narrative. It really does seem to me that uh, there is a worldview issue with the press and how they cover these that prevents... Uh, the, the counter narrative from coming out and it, it defund the police is a great one where for so long the media seemed supportive of the issue till it turned out to be a polling disaster and then they denied anyone wanted to do it and yet uh, I, I hear from black families in Atlanta all the time where I am that uh, the the crime issues within their communities is over the top and the press doesn't seem to cover it. They really don't. There's a direct correlation between police nullification when, when, when prog uh, radical progressives condemn the police, anytime there is any incident like George Floyd, it, it's, it, they extrapolate on it and blow it up as if it's typical, when in fact they're only about in the course of a year, maybe 12 situations where unarmed blacks have been shot. Uh, and yet uh, uh, they, 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 they portray it as if it's, 
a common uh, occurrence. And so it's, just, it's used by those to, as a bludgeon against this country. And, and, but again, it is the people in those communities suffering the problem that must speak out against it. Because ever since we've been attacking the police and moving towards defunding, and the police pull back and become less aggressive in enforcing the laws in these high crime areas, the higher the murder rate goes up. So, it, so what Black Lives Matter and some of these other progressive groups are doing is really participating in the destruction of, they're, they're aiding and abetting the destruction of those communities and people living there. And we must give them the tools to fight back for themselves. That's what we're doing at the Woodson Center, giving them the tools, the information, some funding. We just gave a half million dollars to 100 grassroots groups in these communities who are fighting back against this uh, uncivil behavior on the part of the progressive left. Those, we have to invest in those community healing agents to protect themselves. Now, let me talk to you about education real quick. I, I had a uh, lady call me several years ago when I was doing evening drive time in Atlanta, a single black mother who was explaining to me with uh, the way her school had restructured mathematics. She had an accounting background. She worked multiple jobs. Her mom came in the morning to help get the kids ready to school so she could go to work. And the thing that she wanted to do in the evenings was sit down and help her kids do their homework. And the way they changed with the Common Core math system made it virtually impossible for her to be able to do it unless she went and took a class at her kid's school after all of her jobs were done <laughs> to be able to teach her kids. She was infuriated, and, and that was at a time where, contrary to the local black church community in Atlanta, Black mothers sided with the Republicans in Georgia and advocated statewide charter schools, and, and it passed on the ballot. And there seems to be, even among some progressive black leaders in this country and in the media and, and, and in the Democratic Party, this real disconnect between getting kids in urban communities a good education and actually allowing them to thrive. People don't realize there's always been a huge disconnect between the elite black so-called leadership and rank and file black people, particularly on vouchers and choice and education. National polls have always indicated about 60% of low income black parents support choice, charter schools, uh, vouchers, but only eight to 10% of the so-called leadership supports it. That's because they make their living off of the uh, being of the, of the radical wing of the democratic party, teachers unions, 70 cents of every of the 22 trillion dollars this country has spent in the poverty program 70 cents of every dollar goes to people like like that who are providing services to the poor and so we have created a commodity out of poor people and we wonder why we keep getting poverty so a lot of these black politicians in particular uh, are more concerned about their own income and their standing than they are the the education of low-income black families you remember the big scandal in Atlanta uh, back in, I think, 2011 with Beverly Hall, who was the mm -hmm. superintendent of schools, who, and she was the superintendent of the year, when in fact it was because of the grades, the teachers were getting together with pizza parties and, um, and, and inflating the grades of the kids so that it would reflect right. favorably upon their teaching. You remember that scandal? Uh, I remember. I remember. But it Just was no national disgrace. 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't uniformly condemned by the media. There was no uprising on the part of the civil rights people. That's because the only people who were victims were poor blacks. Mm-hmm. And when they are the ones on the receiving end of this corrupt behavior, it's not important. That's well said. Now, that gets me then to, and those of you who are just joining, I'm talking to uh, Robert Woodson of the Woodson Center, and you have started 1776 Unites in response to the 1619 Project's revision of American history. And and I'd love for you to tell the audience about what you mean by 1776 Unites and what you're doing there. Well, as you know, in in, in August uh, 2019, the New York Times published a series of of essays by black journalists um, under uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and making the case that America's real birth date is 1619 when 20 20 African slaves came in and therefore America should always be defined as a slaveocracy and that uh, it is, and and that all whites are guilty of, 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 of oppression and need to pay reparations and all blacks are victims. Uh, to be compensated and patronized. Well, since the, 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 they were using blacks as the messenger for this poisonous message, fake revisionist history, the Woodson Center decided to pull together scholars and activists to offer 1776 as the legitimate birthday of America, the Declaration of Independence. And so we published a series of essays that documents the, the false and challenge the falseness that is uh, contained in, in that we have generated since then. Uh, and we published a book called Red, White, and Black, uh, challenging revisionist uh, history and race hustlers. And the book sold out in two weeks on Amazon. Wow. And we developed uh, uh, some curriculum so that teachers and parents could have some alternative that gives accurate American history. And it, he had 20, 21,000 downloads in just three months. So we even got one state to, to uh, move away from 1619 and replace it with 1776, which is a more accurate foretelling of history of the country. It, there seems to be a willful effort um, to redefine the history of this country and make it uh, something that they can then weave in the ideas of systemic racism to that, that make it almost unfixable unless we scrap the Constitution and start over. Right. There are people, and we have to be very clear, there are Marxists who are, who are hell-bent on destroying this nation. And they are using the civil rights, the rich history of the civil rights movement they have uh, they have taken position like like a parasite on that and exploiting it uh, to to denigrate the values of this nation using the the, 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 the the history of the civil rights movement and the plight of blacks as the as the reason and rationale for doing that and that's why that we must uh, push back against that but the leadership of that is coming from blacks. But we have the equivalent of the Civil Rights Coalition. It's led by blacks, but we have all uh, groups participating with us to defend the fundamental values of our nation. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. In our essays, we had 20 blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires, and all were patriots. That's fantastic. Mr. Woodson, 
Listen, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed this, and, and I'm afraid I'm running out the clock just talking to you about all these other issues. I, I know the website is 1776 Unites. Um, I sure appreciate you stopping by and spending some time with me. Well, thanks for the, the opportunity. Thank you so much. Mr. Woodson, uh, Bob Woodson, uh, 1776 Unites uh, is the um, is the website, 1776unites.com. And you can find out all about the 1776 Unites Project and also find links to the Woodson Center. They do great work uh, in urban areas around the country, empowering uh, individuals and businesses to take a stand for themselves. Right now, I want you to take a stand for your comfort this winter with the Eden Pure Gen 40 heater. It's a heater cooler, y'all. It's, so it's a fan, and it's, it's oblong, oval-shaped. It's got a fan in it, and it can it can cool, it can heat. In the wintertime, in a 1,000 square feet, it can circulate enough hot air to help you lower your bills. And it's also, I can put it on my front porch and point it at people when it gets cold at night and keep them warm on the front porch while we're hanging out watching football. Uh, if you want to get one, you can get $20 off the lowest sale price and free shipping by going to EdenPureDeals.com edenpuredeals.com. You'll see my name, Eric Erickson, and then click through. You'll see the Gin 40 heater. Put it in your cart at checkout. Use the discount code Eric Heater, E-R-I-C-K Heater, Eric Heater, and you'll be able to get $20 off the lowest sale price. You'll get free shipping. And again, it can warm up about 1,000 square feet. It will help lower your power bills during this cold winter and manages works. And during the summer, you can use it as a fan, so you can use it all year round, not just in the wintertime. Yeah, you know, the phone number, those of you on the phones, be patient with me. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got this audio. I found it. I played some of this uh, or mentioned it yesterday, but I've got this. This is perfect for my conversation with Mr. Woodson. Listen to this audio. This is the Black Lives Matters leader in New York City. If they think that they're going to go back to the old ways of policing, then we're going to take to the streets again. There will be riots, there will be fire, and there will be bloodshed. So there's no way that we're going to let some Gestapo come in here and harm our people. Right? We pray for peace, but black opportunities prepares for the worst. We have people in city council who can create problems for him. We have people in the street who can create problems for this administration by shutting it down. Um, they have a new black mayor in New York City. And this is his response to the new mayor wanting to crack down on crime in New York. I have not been to New York in the last year given COVID and everything. But my friends who live in New York tell me that it is a far different place from what it used to be. Crime is definitively, definitely on the rise. And there are parts of New York City that used to be fairly safe that are turning out to be not so safe anymore. That Rudy Giuliani cleaned them up, Mike Bloomberg kept them cleaned up, and then Bill de Blasio let them go wild again. And the new mayor wants to crack down and support the police and fight the crime. And the Black Lives Matters people are saying there will be bloodshed if he tries to mobilize and build up the police force and reinstate the anti-crime units that Bill de Blasio shut down. That is crazy talk. 
And I listen, uh, you got to understand the dynamics of the New York City mayoral election, whether you live there or not. Uh, This crime was a huge issue, if not the biggest issue. If it wasn't the biggest, and I think it was, it was the second biggest issue in New York. And there were a couple of candidates who were advocates of defund the police, and they crashed and burned. It's very much what you see happening, for example, in the city of Atlanta. The city of Atlanta, they're in a a mayoral runoff between uh, two different people, uh, Andre Dickens, who, if I were in Atlanta, I'd vote for that guy because he has private sector experience and his opponent, the president of the city council has always been in government. Now, at least he knows how the private sector works, and Atlanta has a lot of business relationships to keep up. But nonetheless, they both take a very firm stand against crime. Now, uh, the opponent there in Atlanta really hasn't done anything about it, and she's on city council and hadn't done anything as the president of the city council, so that should be telling too. But they're both campaigning against it and campaigning on being tougher than the present mayor. Being tough on crime is a winning issue this year. Being soft on crime doesn't work. And around the country, politicians are responding to the voters' concerns about crime. And when Black Lives Matter stands up and says, there will be bloodshed if you try to crack down on crime, Mr. Black Mayor, and he is a black mayor, Eric Adams is, the voters are going to have something to say about it. And also, Eric Adams, the incoming mayor of New York, is not someone to be trifled with. He knows how to bully people. He he has done so in the past. Uh, the police have been skeptical of him, and he come, comes in sounding like he's got their back because he knows there's a crime problem, which he ran on to success. When we come back, more of your phone calls, 877-973-7425, and also some problems for the GOP are developing this coming year that are going to cause them potential campaign issues. And you thought these last two years were crazy. Welcome to 2022. It's coming up and nothing makes sense still, especially in business. If you're a small business owner, good luck getting financing from a big bank right now. I can offer you a fantastic solution. If you're looking for $750,000 or more in financing for your business, First Liberty Building and Loan. Let's say you want to buy a new building or you want to refi existing debt or you want to buy a company. Basically, you see opportunity for your business to grow, but you've hit a wall with the mega banks getting financing. That's where First Liberty Building and Loan and my friends, the Frost family, come in. They solve small business financing problems better than anyone I've ever seen. They say yes, where big banks say no. It's that simple. Look, just do this. Spend 10 minutes with them. Call them, First Liberty Building and Loan. Say Eric sent you. In 10 minutes, you'll know if you're a good fit for their program. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's firstlibertyga.com. They help small businesses nationwide in all 50 states. Firstlibertyga.com. 